Welcome to the Diverse Economy is for Youth podcast. As part of the Dice Collective, our unique podcast connects scholars and leaders in feminist political economies to youth who envision an alternative world that treats them as people instead of as profits. Inspired by the Kumbayi River Collective by African-American women in the 1970s, we invite you to listen along with an open mind and a hopeful heart. I'm your host, Serena Pahador, at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in today. We're on episode four, season two of our podcast, which is absolutely so exciting. So today we want to flip the script on what we might typically talk about in economics. We've got Dr. Suzanne Bergeron, an amazing professor, here with us on this conversation called For the 99% Feminist Economics for Our Solidarity Economies. Dr. Bergeron is a professor of gender and economic development who taught for over 25 years at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. Since graduating with a PhD in economics, she has written countless books and journal articles including Formal, Informal, and Care Economies for Oxford University Press, among many others. From her long list of honors and awards, Dr. Bergeron has received the Women's Studies Research Award from the University of Michigan-Dearborn, both in 2000 and in 2005, as well as the Distinguished Service Award in 2013. She has developed several new courses as she innovates and highlights the role of feminist economics in transforming the way we view the economy. It is with this expertise intact that she, as a feminist political economist, sits on the Dice Collective's Advisory Council. Hi, Dr. Bergeron. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Serena. I'm so happy to be here. I want to tell your audience just a little bit more about my work. I'm a feminist political economist, and I've been doing work in that area for close to four decades. And I actually first became interested in this topic when I was an undergraduate. So I know a lot of your listeners might be undergraduate students. And this was in the 1980s. And I was very lucky at that time to have professors that treated feminist economics as a legitimate field of study. In my senior year, I, I worked as a research assistant for professors who were writing a textbook called Understanding Capitalism, and they asked me to maybe develop some ideas they could put in the book that highlighted the importance of women's unpaid labor in the economy. And so I generated data to make that case, and we were able to show that it made up um, about one third of the U.S. economy. And I also did work for them to highlight other forms of economic diversity. So it's really funny to look back and realize from that first project onward, I've been focusing on gender and diverse economies. And that's always been central to my work, whether it was research on gender and agricultural cooperatives in Nicaragua, which I did in the 80s, we're looking at the ways that gender and development policies ignored diverse economic practices, thus threatening both women's empowerment and community well-being. And then in the last 10 years, getting a lot more involved with the United Nations Social and Solidarity Economy Task Force, the Community Economies Research Network, and most recently, recently of course, DICE, the Diverse Solidarity Economies Collective. And in all of those projects, highlighting ways that we can make diverse solidarity and community economies more visible and supported in development policy. 
You have done so much amazing work for this field and we look up to so much of the work that you've done. And I'm so thrilled that you had the time to come on the podcast. And I feel like this is such an important time for us to have a discussion like this. So typically we hear a lot about economics, but you bring in this angle that you just described with your knowledge and your expertise about feminist economics. So just as a first starting up warm up question, how would you explain to youth and to our general audience today what feminist economics is? Sure, happy to do that. Well, um, feminist economics, I would say, first emerged in the 1970s and 80s to challenge the biased and partial accounts of the economy that were being generated by mainstream economics. And among other insights, I would say feminists highlighted the importance of previously uncounted unpaid household work. They critiqued the dominant economic view that gender wage inequities were the result of women's own bad choices. They challenged the standard conception of the universal economic agent as a detached, self-interested and competitive being and presented an alternative account that stressed how social difference and contexts might impact the way people make economic decisions. By the early 1990s, there was so much excitement around this project and the International Association for Feminist Economics was created. And out of that project came the journal Feminist Economics. And today, feminist economics is a pretty established subfield of economics that tackles a wide range of issues, including household economics, macroeconomics, um, development, labor market discrimination, and more. Feminist economics, like all feminisms, is not one perspective. It, there's really a range of perspectives that come under that bat banner. And I would say some are more connected to the mainstream than others. Some are more interdisciplinary than others. Some are more focused on diverse economies than others. Some are much more attentive to how gender intersects with race, coloniality, sexuality, and class uh, than others. Now, if I can just go on a little bit more, I, I want to say that some of the work that falls under the banner of feminist economics doesn't seem particularly feminist to me. It tends more toward what we might call gender economics, which is just looking at gender differences and outcomes in markets and focusing on how to make markets more efficient rather than being focused on justice issues. And this kind of gender economics also tends to reify gender difference. You know, men do this, women do that. It ignores the role of race, class, and other power dynamics. But there's a wide range of perspectives that share a certain set of principles that scholar Marilyn Power has termed the social provisioning approach. And these feel more feminist to me in the sense of taking a critical approach to the mainstream while seeking to rectify inequities and injustices. And this approach, I think we can boil it down to a few key points. First, it redefines economics as the study of the provisioning of human life rather than the study of markets and profits. Second, it includes diverse economic activities that lie inside and outside of markets, paid and unpaid work, cooperation and community networks, the public sector, the natural world. Third, it acknowledges motivations such as care, cooperation, and solidarity. And fourth, it views ethics as central to economics. We don't just analyze, we're here to improve the world. So I think anything that falls under that banner, I'm much more interested in. Some examples of how this approach um, 
works includes obviously efforts to highlight the role of unpaid domestic labor and care work. But another example would be the work that feminist economists have done to change the way we measure economic success. So moving away from, you know, growth fetishizing measures such as gross domestic product and focusing more on things that can measure human development, like the Human Development Index, which was created by a feminist economist named Amartya Sen, <laughs> um, and other kind of measurements to improve human well-being. So um, there's more things that they do, and maybe uh, some of these will come up later, but I think that's a good start. Thank you. That was a great start. Such a thorough explanation, Dr. Bergeon. And like some of our audience, maybe I'm relatively new to learning about what feminist economics are and what they can be. And I'm learning so much about that from other scholars and yourself and some of the works that I've uh, interacted from you as well. And what I'm really finding is that it is truly necessary to have this critical view of the economy that properly takes into account our identities and connects that to our economic experiences. And you sort of mentioned this when you were talking about this um, rational economic being, but um, that kind of idea of connecting our identities with our economic experiences isn't something that mainstream economics has always made room for. And this rational agent, you know, it's supposed to represent everybody, but this one-size-fit-all idea of how we fit into the economy doesn't work because the roles we take on in our lives, the relationships we sustain, have a lot to do with uh, and influence a lot of our I, our um, economic identity. So my favorite thing about feminist economics is that it takes into account your positionality and who you are when you're interacting with the economy. So we've got feminist economics defined, and then you mentioned solidarity. Uh, I remember the first time we spoke, Dr. Bergeron, you so wisely told me that feminist economics might or might not intersect with the idea of solidarity economy. Um, and I wanted to know a little bit more about that. So how does the perspective of feminist economies, or sorry, feminist economics inform us on the solidarity economy? And how do these two ideas intersect or sometimes fail to intersect to teach us more about what an economy should be like? Serena, that's such a great question. <laughs> oh. oh, I have so much to say. So I'll try to like, keep it, keep it like edit myself a little bit. So first, by highlighting the diversity of the economic landscape, feminist economics has really created space for attention to the solidarity economy in a couple of ways. And this is a point that feminist geographer J.K. Gibson Graham made many years ago. She argued that feminist economics very persuasively showed that the economy was made up of way more than the market economy. And while feminist economics was focused on unpaid caring labor, that recognition of economic difference sort of cracked open the old vision of the economy as market that allow, and, and in ways that allow us to see so many other activities outside of competitive market capitalism. So another way that space for attention to the solidarity economy was created by feminist economics was through its attention to diverse motivations in the economy. Once solidarity, community-centered and caring motivations could be viewed as economic motivations, solidarity activities once relegated to e the economies outside could be better imagined as part of it. So, so that's um, like the first way I think feminist economics and solidarity economies sort of intersect. 
Second, I think the perspective of feminist economics informs us on the solidarity economy by highlighting the important role of women within it. And I think too often the scholarly and policy focus has of like social and solidarity economies has neglected important forms of economic activity undertaken by women, such as women organizing to address the crises of social reproduction and care that they face. And there's a long history of women in racialized and otherwise marginalized communities mobilizing to provide collective care and mutual aid. The feminist economist Nina Banks has argued in her recent study of black communities in the U.S., that, that often this work done in black communities by women has not been seen or valued as making an economic contribution. And thankfully her work and the work of others like our own DICE advisory board member, Jessica Gordon-Empart are changing this. Uh, Carolyn Shanaz Hussein's work on rotating credit associations has been critical here as well. While the financial mainstream dismisses these forms of financial mutual aid as an inferior form of finance that should be replaced with marketized finance, Carolyn shows how these are crucial contributors to economic thriving in marginalized communities. I guess a related point worth mentioning here is how feminist economics can bring attention to the ways that solidarity economies are improving women's lives and livelihoods, providing an important alternative to mainstream approaches that aim to reduce gender inequality by drawing women into the dominant capitalist sphere. So, you know, we can look to where the scholarship where feminist economics and solidarity economies intersect often provides us with a way to see alternatives that we can build on. Let me finally mention the important contribution of feminist economics and especially the strand of feminist political economy to bringing previously ignored social reproduction into the conversation about solidarity economies. Um, social reproduction, that's a term that refers to the role of activities and processes of sustaining and reproducing life in the development of capitalism. And how human labor gets sustained and reproduced so that people can be productive and generate profits is an important thing, right? While originally analyses of social reproduction focused only on unpaid household labor, today we realize that social reproduction happens with paid social labor, like reproductive labor, like paid domestic work, or systems of labor where households become sites of paid work and social reproduction simultaneously. And the disappearance of the natural commons around the world has also intensified social reproductive labor. People who once relied upon these commons, these forests, these fisheries, these croplands for their survival no longer have them. So that creates a crisis. And central to these analyses are an emphasis on the contradictions between capitalist profitability and provisioning for well-being. That search for profits has increased exploitation, making it harder for people to meet their social reproductive needs. Um, now, what does this have to do with solidarity economies is that what we see in these contradictory systems is the emergence of more collaborative and solidaristic ways to meet social reproductive needs, including community childcare, mutual aid to provide food and other goods, the sharing of knowledge and resources and so forth. And we certainly saw this in the COVID-19 pandemic. 
So many people in that particular crisis, and I would say that COVID was itself a contradictory crisis of capitalism, not just a health crisis, started to mobilize around mutual aid and solidarity economy. But you have lots of other examples around the world, um, community centers in Argentina, people's canteens in West Africa, the Self-Employed Women's Association in India, and many more. So here we see the solidarity economy has the potential for addressing the crisis of social reproduction that is really exploiting so many poor people and especially women around the world. So I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, much of the common ground that the idea of feminist uh, economics and the solidarity economy cover together, and you sort of mentioned this a bit, suggests these values and these principles around community, around sharing, uh, communal wealth building, reciprocity, well-being. And when I think about these ideas that are being generated through solidarity economy and feminist economics, it's so heartwarming because it speaks to our humanity much, much more. Whereas, in my opinion, mainstream economics speaks predominantly to our economy. And I'm going to you know, interject with a little bit of a, a side question. But um, given all this, it's not a surprise that economics as a discipline gives more attention to work that supports what we're already told to believe about it. Um, and I remember you once mentioned to me a woman named Claudia Golden, who recently won the Nobel Prize in economics. So for the side question, what did you think about her work in economics? Does her framework align more with mainstream economics or feminist economics? Was it sort of in between? Like, what did you think? I think it's more in between. I mean, it's very exciting that a woman won the Nobel Prize. It's the third woman to win a Nobel Prize and that she won it for work on gender equity. So it's really a first in that way. And so we have to celebrate it. And yet at the same time, acknowledge that the Nobel Prize is a very flawed prize. It, it, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it really recognizes work that hews very close to the mainstream in general and that Claudia Golden's work itself is very much grounded in mainstream economic frameworks that she's um, much more focused and I'll talk a little bit more I was going to talk a little bit about more about that later but I guess I can um, talk, mention it more now that she's she's focused on questions of equity in households but she really only looks at um, upper and middle class women and men in like high powered careers. She doesn't take race or class into account. She's mostly focused on like inefficient outcomes rather than being focused on justice. Although justice plays a small part in her work, but it's not the driving force. And she tends to frame things more around individual choice. And so for instance, why do women and men um, in, in a particular household, why might a woman earn less than a man in that household? It's because that couple made a choice that the woman would take a job that was more flexible so she could do the caretaking work. And that kind of ignores like the amazing power of gender role expectations of discrimination in labor forces. And then let's not even talk about what happens if we brought in race or location into the equation. So 
Yeah, I would say I see her as hewing more to a main, that mainstream gender economics approach that I mentioned earlier, rather than being like a full-on feminist economist. And just, just as a side note, I don't think she's even a member of the International Association for Feminist Economics. Really? Really. I don't think she is. I'm pretty sure she isn't. <laughs> Okay, I I just had to ask that. I find it really interesting, you know, the type of work that gets um, recognized the most, um, especially when we're in this um, period of time where we're trying to see what else is economics, what else is theirs, because economics as we know it isn't really working for us, you know. So we know that the current framework that's being used in economics to help us think through our economic challenges could use some different perspectives and supporting the work and conversations we need around diversifying our economies is central to what we're doing right now on this podcast and what you do as a member of the Dice Collective's Advisory Council. All of you are a group of scholars who are feminist political economists, a term you mentioned earlier. Can you break down for us what exactly that means, what a feminist political economist is, and why the Dice is made up of them? And how do you see the Dice's work extending this current framework of economics? Sure. Great, Serena. Great question. Um, Well, a feminist political economist, or maybe I should say a feminist radical political economist, because that's a term that some people use, takes a different approach from more mainstream feminist economics, or certainly from the kind of gender economics of Claudia Golden. Um, Feminist radical political economists are focused more on a critical examination of capitalism and are actively seeking alternatives. My colleague, Jen Cohen, um, has actually written on this very question. So what is a feminist radical political economist? And she says the great thing about that framework is that it highlights the biased nature of economics and then challenges it because economics has long been dominated by white upper and middle class European men the positionality that you talked about earlier, Serena. And because of that, it focuses on the aspect of the economy in which white European men typically work and what the ideal for that is, meaning the competitive realm of market production where people act in very self-interested and individualistic ways, or at least that's the ideal, right? And this bias tends to overvalue the processes of capitalist market production, and it undervalues other economic activities such as unpaid social reproductive work and formal sector work. And by informal, I mean work that falls outside of the official labor market. It devalues work motivated by values of solidarity and community rather than competition and profit, etc. And all of those things that devalues are also coded as feminine. So the goal of feminist radical political economy is to expose that bias, to highlight the voices and experience that have been pushed to the margins of mainstream economics. And that is really the work that DICE is doing. The scholarship and activism of DICE, as stated on the website, is to ensure that marginalized people's voices and experiences are acknowledged through anti-racist work that extends from academia to the communities that we study. So we are decolonizing economics, and that is a distinct feature of DICE work compared to other work in feminist radical political economy. That explicit focus on how race, colonialism, caste, class, and other relations of power intersect with gender. Of course, there are some other groups out there doing decolonizing work, and that's been a very heartening development, especially for someone like me 
who's doing that kind of work trying to decolonize economics 30 years ago when there was only a handful of people, such as DICE advisory board member S. Charushila, who were engaged in similar pursuits. It was lonely. Um, so like DICE and then these other groups doing this work, it mean, you know, it's great to have these communities doing this work together. And in the scholarly, scholarly work that DICE members are generating, I see a merger of feminist radical political economy commitments with anti-racism and decolonial politics as they amplify the previously ignored activities of racialized women coming together to create ethical, community-focused solidarity economies that allow them to survive and thrive. Thank you for breaking that down, Dr. Bergeon. I really like the term feminist political economist, and I hadn't heard feminist radical political economist. I really like both of them, even though they're wordy. But um, I like them because they represent the fact that there's more than one way to be an economist, just like there's more than one way to interact with the economy, which is what we're all about right now. How can we reframe what we know about the economy right now so that we can learn from all these contributions from feminist political economists like yourself? Great question. So in my experience with young feminists, I have found that a lot of them approach the economy as something bigger than them, some big market capitalist system out there that has its own logic that only experts can understand. And so, like, that really isn't for them to understand. Because, um, like, only experts can understand this thing that's a machine-like system. So I guess the first reframing that I would suggest would be to realize that the economy is not some machine with its own logic, but um, a sphere of ethical negotiation that we are a part of. And that phrase, ethical negotiation, seeing the economy as a sphere of ethical negotiation, that comes again from the geographer, feminist geographer, J.K. Gibson Graham. And I think it's a great framework. Once people stop feeling intimidated by their idea of the economy as something that's too big for them to understand, I think they're going to be more likely to see how many of their own everyday activities are making important economic contributions or shaping the economy. They'll begin to see the ways that they represent the economy um, differently as a set of diverse practices that can include unpaid labor, community mutual aid, solidarity economy practices, and the like, rather than representing it as a single capitalist system, also frees up some space for nurturing and creating alternatives to which they don't like. You know, So now we can start to create alternatives to that machine we didn't like. It takes a lot to revalue um, these feminized, racialized activities that have been devalued in dominant discourse. But I think these acts of revaluation and reframing, both big and small, are so worth it. So I don't know if that really answers your question. I hope it does. But I think I'm, t- I'm asking people when I'm saying reframing, I'm thinking change your change your mind and your representations of the economy as not something that's out of your control, but something that you have a voice in. 
No, that that completely, totally answers my question. And the whole thing did from start to finish. As soon as you started talking, you're like, when I talk to young feminists, they see this as a machine that they don't understand. That is how I feel, even though, you know, I've studied international development. I care so much about, you know, dismantling these um, systems that don't really work for us and seeing these alternatives. That is what I think. And that's why these conversations are so important, because now that you've said this, hopefully for other people listening too, it really gives me some perspective on how I can participate and exist in the economy in a different way. And as I study this field more and more, I'm just becoming so immersed in what economics and what life could be like if we continue to embrace this um, multiplicity of viewpoints of economics into what our economy can be. And this is happening slowly but surely, as you've been saying. So as the world uh, turns to more sustainable and feminist perspectives, how do you believe that this will benefit the study of economics and the economy that we experience in our everyday lives? Well, um, I hope it does. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen some changes in economics during the past 30 years, including the development of that vibrant subfield of feminist economics and another field, which is called ecological economics, which I taught for like 20 years And these two fields are respectively tackling crucial issues related to gender and ecological sustainability. And um, they draw upon the movements, they draw upon those social movements um, and the broader societal concerns. And I think both of these approaches have in many ways been great at integrating activist perspectives into economic scholarship. And that's really exciting. Just as a side note, I wish there was more cross-fertilization across those two subfields, feminist and ecological economics, than is currently happening, but that's another podcast. (laughs) So um, I think it's important to note that broader perspectives on sustainability and feminism have not made much of an inroad into mainstream economics. They have only changed subfields in what we call heterodox economics, and by heterodox I mean those subfields outside of the neoclassical mainstream market and individual choice centered economic, you know, systems of knowledge. So frameworks such as feminist, ecological and social economy and the like, that's what I would term heterodox. So in order for these perspectives to get a hearing in the study of economics, universities around the world actually need to make more space for heterodox economic approaches. And sadly, I see things in the English speaking university system moving in the opposite direction right now with vibrant critical heterodox programs being dismantled or starved of resources in the US, in Canada, and in the UK. Um, And so then some of that work uh, is taking place like in like in programs like yours that are outside of economics, but it would be also nice for people to be able to get PhDs where they could study heterodox economics and that's becoming harder and harder to do. My own PhD program at the University of Notre Dame was actually closed down and replaced with a free market economic system about 15 years ago. What? Yeah, so this this stuff happens. Um, And yes, feminist ideas about Um, you know, some feminist ideas and some ideas about sustainability are creeping into the mainstream to some extent. But I want to make the case that it's like, I put my money on the heterodox approaches, because I just think the way that the mainstream is dealing with this is by and large, not 
particularly compelling. And I think the example of Claudia Golden, who we talked about earlier, is a great one here. Yay, she won the Nobel Prize. And I think this recognition, Harvard economist, wins the Nobel Prize for work on gender equity, it, it's probably going to make mainstream economists pay a little more attention to questions of gender equity in the near future. And to me, that seems to be like the biggest win we could expect from it. There's also the field of environmental economics, which acknowledges ecological issues and attempts to address them using market-based approaches. That's a growing field in the mainstream neoclassical economics. But that work is just not as rich or engaged or reflective of diversity or as justice-oriented as the work that's being done outside of the mainstream. So as I, I, I just reiterate that my money's on you know, if we think about these broader questions of gender equity and sustainability and how they can be translated into an economics that can help us change the world, my money is on heterodox approaches. Okay, thank you for that. I agree. And I think that we need to pay a lot more attention to diversifying economics because it can do a lot for us. And I think that if we continue having these kinds of conversations and supporting the work of feminist economics, we stand a great chance at actualizing this kind of future for ourselves. And I definitely believe that it's something worth fighting for. So as a final question, if there was only one thing that you could have everyone listening to this podcast remember about feminist economics and solidarity economies, what would be your last words to us, your parting words? Sure. Well, I would say read my entry, Feminist Economics and the Social and Solidarity Economy in the Encyclopedia of the Social and Solidarity Economy. It's open access and it's easy to find online. Okay, but seriously, although <laughs> go read it because it's written for a general audience. But I would reiterate that there is a range of approaches to feminist economics, but people should seek out those approaches that take a social provisioning approach, meaning those that define economics as the study of provisioning for human life and recognize activities outside of the formal market and acknowledge motivations of care and see ethics as part of economic analysis. And I would add that there is so much more work to be done to bring feminist economics into conversation with solidarity economies to make scholarship and activism around building social and solidarity economies more inclusive, while also getting feminists to pay more attention to vibrant solidarity economy practices. DICE is doing this work, but there's so much more to do, and I hope listeners will be inspired to get involved in these projects. Thank you for those inspiring words, Dr. Bergeon. I remember the first time we spoke, you told me that it's so important how we frame these alternative spaces after, you know, everyone listening, we don't want people thinking, okay, we have, you know, the quote unquote regular economy. And then we have this set of lesser economies that people only use because they can't get into the real one. That's not it at all. What we really want to hit home is that these spaces are created by people, yes, out of necessity and survival, but they've made it into diversified and vocal places where you can flourish. They have something made for everyone and everyone can access it. And this is something that the formal economy says doesn't or shouldn't exist, but it gets stronger every day. And this is an accomplishment and an innovative way to achieve your goals in life. 
The way I like to think about it is if the formal economy has created a straight and narrow path for us to walk on and there are a lot of barriers for you to continue down that road, you might look to the left and to the right and you see that a new road is being paved and you can take this other route to reach your destination. Multiple kinds of economies and ways to interact with them is truly a reassuring thing. Thank you again for coming on this episode, Dr. Bergeron, and this concludes our conversation on the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. A huge thanks to Dr. Suzanne Bergeron for coming onto our podcast and sharing her thoughts on feminist economics and their role in the solidarity economy. And of course, for her continued dedication to serving the Dice Collective's Advisory Council. To keep thinking with us, send us any questions, comments, or ideas you might have for us at Africana underscore economies on Instagram and Facebook and at Africana Economy on Twitter. The Diverse Economies for Youth podcast is made by youth for youth and made possible by funding from the Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm your host, Serena Bahador, and next month we'll have a new episode of our podcast where we learn how to create a world that treats us as people instead of as profits. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time.